Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Timing is everything in medicine, and this week we look at some new exciting research that relies on time. Now, having enough time to have an effective treatment is incredibly important for diseases like Alzheimer's. Plus, we need to have enough time to deliver an antivenom to someone who's suffered from a deadly sting. Plus, we find out about some ways to save time by getting better detection from leftover junk from our blood test samples. Now, everybody knows that Australia is home to many deadly creatures. Why, you can just rattle off a list or a handy song that will capture pretty much everything in Australia that at some point is trying to kill you. And that's certainly true for some of the most deadly creatures in our oceans. Now most people know of, of course, the great white shark. Maybe people think of crocodiles as well. But actually lurking inside our oceans is an incredibly deadly and poisonous creature. That is the Australian box jellyfish, Chinarex fleckery to be precise. And box jellyfish There's two real main types of them. The incredibly small one is known as the Irigangi, and they are incredibly tiny and incredibly deadly, found in big swarms depending on the season. But the Chinarex flicaria is actually much larger. It's more about three meters long, and it's a hunting creature. They can actively swim, which is a bit strange to think about for a jellyfish, but getting up to about 7.5 kilometers an hour, hunting down things like small fish and prawns and stinging them with their incredibly dangerous venom. As with most things in Australia, we have to learn how to try and live with them and cope with them. And new research out of University of Sydney, published most recently in the journal Nature Communications, outlines a way to use the very innovative CRISPR genome editing technique to find a way to actually stabilise and generate an antidote for the most deadly of jellyfish venom, that is the venom of the box jellyfish. This is led by researchers from the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney, who are actually experts in pain and analysing and studying pain. Now, one of the scary parts about the box jellyfish is that it has about 60 tentacles. These can grow to incredible lengths, like three metres long. On each tentacle are millions of microscopic hooks, and these hooks are what are filled with the deadly venom. Now, to a human, a single sting from just one of those tentacle hooks is enough to cause necrosis of the skin and excruciating pain. Now, if you're unfortunate enough to get a lot of venom, either through the delivery from one of those micro hooks or through a number of them getting into you, you can get cardiac arrest. You can be dead within minutes. Now, that's why researchers like Professor Greg Neely and Dr. Raymond Lau have been trying to dig into ways to counteract this deadly, devastating jellyfish sting. And the way they started was actually pretty interesting. First, they needed to understand how the venom works. Well, the reason why they were looking at this is they're pain researchers. So since the box jellyfish is not only pretty deadly, but it's also incredibly painful, they wanted to know what exactly in it was causing such large amounts of pain. So what they did was take a vat of millions and millions of human cells, and in each one of them, they knocked out a different human gene. They then added the box jellyfish venom into this vat and noted down which cells survived and which cells died off. And from this screening process, they were able to identify 
which parts of the human genome are required for the venom to actually work and which parts are pretty much inert and don't respond at all to the venom. So once you know that, then they can start identifying the pathway that the jellyfish venom uses. Now, what they actually found was that the identified pathway requires cholesterol. And the good news about that is there's actually lots of drugs available on the market that target cholesterol. So once they knew that the jellyfish venom was using this cholesterol pathway, it was simply a matter of finding a drug that could block this pathway and see how the venom responded. So they took one of these drugs, which is known to be safe for human use, and they used it against the venom. And spectacularly, it worked. But that means it only worked on a molecular level. It was what they call, as Dr. Lau notes, a molecular antidote. But this is a pretty new and innovative technique. It's the first molecular dissection of how, in particular, this venom works. But it could be used to study other venoms, which is a pretty interesting idea. Basically find which molecule that the and pathway that the venom is using, and then find a specific way to block it. Now, what they have identified by blocking out that particular pathway, they can test it and see how it works. Now, they know that the particular drug that they're using will stop necrosis and skin scarring, and especially when applied to the skin. Now, they're not entirely sure if it will stop cardiac arrest, which is, of course, the most fatal of the impacts of the venom. But it is a good starting point of a way of identifying new methods, a new type of antidote detection, and a simple and straightforward way of developing a new antivenom for one of the world's most deadly jellyfish. The other interesting part is though, while they've tested it for the big beast, the Chinorex flicari, they haven't actually tried to see if it works for the irigangi venom. Good news about the antidote is it actually blocks the venom, but you need to get it onto the site within 15 minutes, which can be pretty tough. But if in the study itself, they actually injected it straight into the bloodstream. But the idea would be to have it as a spray or a topical cream, um, a challenge with a cream, of course, is that if it's stung, you've been stung, then you get the stingers stuck on your skin. So then rubbing something into it is probably not the best move because you can actually push in more stingers. But if it's a spray, it actually might be useful, but may you neutralize stuff left outside the body. So they're actually trying to find ways to turn this into a pretty rapid treatment, which is good because at the moment, the only real anecdotal evidence for a good treatment for a box jellyfish sting is to douse the area in vinegar for 30 seconds or running very hot water over the affected area for 20 minutes. And if it's a major sting, you, you need pretty much continuous CPR to keep the heart beating, potentially as it goes into cardiac arrest. So this is a great and innovative way of finding a new method of actually identifying an antivenom and making sure we can use existing drugs and adapting them to solve another problem. Some great work out of the University of Sydney, including lead authors, Dr. Lau, numerous others. One of the incredibly difficult parts of testing for any illness is getting enough of a sample and making sure you can do enough with that sample to actually detect something serious. In the case of cancer, actually getting a biopsy is an incredibly important part of uh, actually getting enough proof that you are cancer-free or have the cancer in a particular organ or cell or in a different part of your body. But the problem with biopsies is that they're invasive and painful, and scientists doctors are trying to always find ways to increase the ease of actually finding out if somebody is ill, but also making it simpler and more straightforward and faster to 
give faster diagnosis, but also the more effective way is to actually do mass measurement. So instead of doing an expensive and complicated procedure, which may add risk, particularly if someone is unwell, you can actually get a quick and simple diagnosis. Now, of course, taking measurements, diagnosing a whole bunch of diseases from a simple blood prick is what have got Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes in trouble for their outlandish, overzealous claims for what could be achieved, which turned it out to be mostly fraud. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're going to be focusing on a, a new type of technology that is very real and in development, including places like University of Michigan's Rogel Cancer Center. And what they're using is actually not a brand new technique, but they're actually finding the leftover bits and using a technology called liquid biopsies. They're obviously less invasive than a traditional biopsy, and they're actually making use of data that you may already have but not actually studying to its full potential. And the whole basis around this is instead of trying to analyze for things left in the main bloodstream, they're actually just looking for leftover fragments of RNA and particular types of RNA left over in blood plasma. Now, often in a blood sample of blood plasma, you'll have all kinds of things just floating around in there, proteins, DNA, you name it. I mean, there's also tiny fragments of RNA and normally these little leftover bits or fragments are invisible to traditional methods of RNA sequencing. And these include messenger RNAs and long non-coding RNAs. So things that don't actually code to produce a protein or any other type of chemical inside your body. But just because they're not easily detectable doesn't mean they don't tell us anything particularly useful. They can actually provide important clues about the activities of genes throughout the body including genes that are active in certain organs, helping you diagnose certain regions, or things that are associated with certain diseases, like cancer. So though they aren't direct measurements, they're actually pretty good indicative sources, and they could be used as potential biomarkers for a whole number of conditions. And Professor of Internal Medicine at UAM, Munesh Tiwari, has been trying to get this idea off the ground for a long time. Well, for example, he states, in cancer, we're excited about applying this approach to detect the earliest signs of autoimmune disease or side effects for immunotherapies. But you could also use this as an early detection for cancer because there's some really long non-coding types of RNA that only appear in certain cancer types. And all of this new and innovative method was written up and published in EMBO Journal in May. Now, all the way back in 2008, Tawari who was then at the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center in Seattle, was actually published a method of using different types of microRNAs, detecting them in tumors in blood plasma. But the problem was, this was the, really the shortcoming of the method, it wasn't able to detect any organ-specific type of RNA, mostly because they're only found in tiny fragments. So this new research, worked on together with Maria Giraldes and Ryan Spengler, built on basically a decade of work by Tawari and his team. Now, just because in the old method that Tawari initially developed, you couldn't find any organ-specific types of complete RNA, that doesn't mean there wasn't any information there. In fact, he missed a lot of these tiny, small fragments because he didn't have a good way of processing them. There was no way that you could actually get them to show up in the blood plasma sequencing results. So instead, at the moment, what they did was use a specific enzyme to basically snip and cut and treat or tailor the ends of these fragments. 
what that does is it sort of makes the RNA fragment into something that's detectable in the sequencer. And just by doing that, by treating them with an enzyme to clean up the edges to make it look like something detectable, then you could actually find a whole bunch of additional information just there in the bloodstream that was overlooked before. Now, the problem is, you get a whole bunch of stuff there. Because now you've applied this enzyme, tidied up all these loose ends and fragments, and you just are awash in a sea, in plasma, of little strings of leftover RNA and other things as well. So you have to sort through all of this to try and find useful pieces of signal from that noise. Just leftover bits of genetic material or fragments of DNA on RNA that could be from the bacteria or from viral as well as from our own genome. And that just makes the whole thing very, very messy. That's where people like Ryan Spengler came in because they have an expertise in data analysis. Now, one of the big challenges, as Spengler points out, is that when you're looking at a tiny fragment, there's more than one place that that fragment could fit in. Imagine it like a sentence. If I give you three letters or three words in a sequence, the cat opens. You don't know what they're opening. You could, that could be in a number of sentences throughout the book. It could appear in numerous places in numerous books, whether it be in the human genome or somewhere else. So trying to match it all up is incredibly difficult. So they developed this method called phosphoRNA sequence. Phospho, because that's sort of the way it tailors and treats the RNA, and the RNA because it's the first type of thing they try to apply it to. And so what they did is they actually took a whole bundle of jump of curated pool of RNA. So they knew what the results would look like. So they knew exactly what they should get from the initial test. And then they found out if their method worked or not, optimized and changed the tagging method. And then they applied it to real world samples of plasma collected from two patients who undertook bone marrow plant transplants at the University of Michigan. And what they found is that they could track the markers the reconstitution of their bone marrow after the transplants, as well as exactly what was changing in their blood plasma RNA, and which could indicate an injury in their liver, which they actually knew from that patient's medical records was the case. So they're able to identify an organ-specific thing just from these tiny leftover fragments of RNA, which is incredibly promising for new diagnosis methods, but also incredible to think about. From a tiny leftover fragment piece, a thread or a crumb, in the blood plasma, they're able to actually help diagnose a condition in a specific part of the body. There's thousands of these RNAs floating around in the bloodstream. And all of these tiny fragments may have some function or they may not. But what we do know now is that we can actually use this analysis method to work on transcribing, not just the human genome, but all of these little fragment bits as well. So then we can start to get an idea about if we see this fragment, what it may mean for a certain region in the body or a certain type of cancer, which is a good case in the case of the long non-coding strings of RNA. And this is some pretty exciting research, which shows the challenges of medical diagnosis. Some great work out of the University of Michigan, led by Maria Aldous, Ryan Spengler, and Professor Tawari. If you're suffering from a disease like Alzheimer's, which is one of the most frequent causes of dementia, 
One of the major diagnosis methods is to look for these typical plaques that are formed in the brain. But the problem is once these plaques have formed, that it's incredibly difficult to actually have some type of treatment or therapy. To most people, it seems non-impossible. Surprisingly, the first changes inside the brain caused by Alzheimer's takes place all the way onto the protein level. It happens about 20 years before all the major symptoms or signs actually start to become visible. Now, researchers from the Ruhr Universität Boschum have developed a two-tier type approach that can help shorten this detection and discovery time away from being something that's way too late, something that's been actually much earlier and much more practical. And all this was published in the May edition of the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia. Now, having an early stage therapy for Alzheimer's and Dementia would be great. Now, we don't have effective drugs for that point because most of the treatments we have are too inefficient but we need to actually develop something that will work as soon as possible because we know that if you leave it too late there's really no hope but the problem is we don't have any good detection method but the important part is for Alzheimer's you can look at the amyloid beta protein now in people with Alzheimer's the amyloid beta protein folds moves over and recombines incorrectly and this is because of a pathological change that starts to happen in the patient's body. And this happens 20 years before even the first symptoms start appearing. Now, a team of researchers at RUB, led by Klaus Gewirt, used this successfully, just diagnosing this misfolding, all the way using a simple blood test. Now, that's pretty incredible to think about. This is basically eight years before any of the first initial clinical symptom signs of Alzheimer's could be detected. You could actually use a straightforward blood test to actually detect if this protein is misbehaving. If you can pick it up that early, then that gives you a lot of time to try and work on the condition. Now, just the blood test on its own worked in about 71% of Alzheimer's patients, or people who are still symptomless. But the real problem with that blood test method is that it had an incredibly high false positive rate, around 9% of the study participants. So detecting it correctly 71% of the time with a 9% false positive rate isn't really a really good method. So in order to increase the number of correctly identified Alzheimer's cases and to obviously decrease the number of false positives, the researchers tried a whole bunch of different ways to optimize that first test. And as a result, they looked for a new biomarker. Now, in this two-tier diagnostic method, they used the original blood test to weed through and identify high-risk individuals. Now, it's not confirming that these people have Alzheimer's, just that they're at a particularly high risk. Then they run further tests on these patients to see if they can string out any further conditions. Now, if both biomarkers in the first test and the second test show a positive result, then there's a pretty high likelihood of Alzheimer's. Now, with both analysis techniques, the, the successful detection rate moves from 71 all the way up to 87. So 87 out of the 100 patients they tested, they were correctly identified. And the false positive rate dropped from 9% all the way down to 3%. And that's a pretty good reduction. Now, the important part about this is the second analysis uses cerebrospinal fluid that's extracted from the spinal fall. So it's not exactly an easy diagnosis method compared to a simple blood test, but it does give further rigor to the test. And instead of having to do that cerebrospinal test for all patients, you only have to do it for those that have been identified at high risk as a confirmation. 
And now you can actually start doing further clinical trials using the same techniques. Now, therapeutic studies that are undergraded to try and treat Alzheimer's, like the clinizumab and acodinab, have been tried and failed in their clinical trials. But that might be just because the time that the therapies have been taken up is after the window of opportunity is closed. So by having early detection methods, even if they're not perfect, does give us a better chance at trying to find a successful treatment, or not cure, but treatment for Alzheimer's itself. And the best part is the blood test part of this has been made into a fully automated process with a simple sensor that sorts through the two biomarkers and is able to do straightforward and straight simple detection. The initial misfolded protein and the second biomarker, this tau protein. And the goal from this is now that they've proved that the method does work is that they can develop into a solely blood-based test in the future that would remove the need for the difficult cerebrospinal fluid cord analysis. So this is a good example of how when we're looking at ways to treat a disease, we need to not only know about it early enough that we can have effective methods, but if we don't have any early detection process in place, then we can't even begin to develop treatments that might work simply because we could be trying actually quite effective treatments, which is way too late. So this is some great work out of the University of Bochum to try and develop a simple and fast detection for Alzheimer's. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From a new way to treat box jellyfish stings to faster ways to detect Alzheimer's in patients, we also found out about ways to use leftover bits of RNA in fragments of blood samples to detect diseases. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.